This is a moral call right here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hello, everyone. Coming to you live from the United States, a real living healthcare dystopia. I am Benjamin Day. And coming to you live from Denmark, where everybody is going to be too distracted with football to notice if I steal a single pair and bring it back home, Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs healthcare. Sadly, all of the Danish soccer fans have nothing left to root for. Neither do the English fans crushed in overtime and free kicks. But let's not get into that. We don't want to alienate our English or Italian friends. Both Italy and England had an NHS. That's like, right. So like, really, healthcare wins single the Euro Cup, no matter what happens. Exactly. <laughs> <I think> so. <laughs> um, <laughs> so today we have actually kind of an action-oriented podcast for you. Congress has an opportunity. They've always actually had this opportunity, but they actually have a real opportunity now to make actual steps towards Medicare for all this week. So. We're kicking off this week of action on the podcast. We're going to go over the four reforms that could potentially expand Medicare that, that are up for debate right now in both the House and Senate. How this whole process of budget reconciliation, which is the vehicle through which we would actually get these reforms, how that all works, what's at play, what's at stake, and uh, the opposition to Medicare expansion. If you can believe it, there is opposition to giving seniors dental care. And then finally, what you can do on this you know, first day of the week of action. So Ben, first question for you. There's this growing call, not just, you know, from the grassroots, but even within Congress to pass several items that would expand Medicare's, the benefits offered through Medicare or lower the age of eligibility for Medicare. So um, how did we get here? Well, uh, without boring everyone to tears and you know having blood run out of your eyes, if I were to list every single item that's going to be in this reconciliation package, this is basically the American Families Plan that Biden announced a couple of months ago, and it includes all sorts of stuff, including that we've talked about a little bit already, including universal pre-K, money for free community college, paid leave for family uh, illnesses, some subsidies for family child care, and then letting the IRS raise extra money by enforcing the tax law, that sort of stuff. And then there's a teeny, teeny, tiny bit of health care in there, but not very much. So that's really what we're talking about is fighting to have this plan include real substantial health care expansions and the ones that bring us closer to, to passing Medicare for all. So there are four specific demands sort of being considered right now to expand and improve Medicare. And I think that the most important one or the one that's going to impact the most people will, and will also probably be the hardest to pass is uh, lowering the eligibility age from 65 to 60. That would actually add 23 million people to uh, Medicare coverage. Of course, lowering it from 65 to 50 would actually add over 60 million people. And I think that we want to kind of shoot for the stars there. But, you know, just reducing it by five years, I think that will be a huge victory if we can get that and possibly the most important of all the reforms. And of course, it would, the other things beyond actually giving people health care, it would lower U.S. health care spending overall and 
employer plans would also uh, be lowered by cost by almost 15%. Ben, what's the next one? The next most important. Well, I would love to just lower the age of Medicare to zero. That's kind of what we're here for, Medicare for all. But the other thing that has a real chance of passing in this budget reconciliation package is to add on to Medicare hearing, dental, and vision. And this is literally right out of the Medicare for all bill. This is included in the Medicare for all bill. Even though we call it, you know, expanded Medicare, it actually improves on Medicare as well. And shockingly, you know, of 75% of Medicare recipients right now who need a hearing aid don't have one. Uh, 70% of beneficiaries did not go to a dentist in the last year, and 50% didn't get an eye exam. So folks who have Medicare, just because dental vision and hearing are not automatically covered in the Medicare program, are just going without on an incredible, uh, totally immoral, unacceptable scale. So we want to fix that, and this would be a step towards that improved Medicare for all that we're fighting for in the first place. Yeah, and I think um, the next thing that is we're being we're fighting for here in Congress is the out of pocket and instituting an out of pocket cap for Medicare. So shockingly, even though most health insurance, private health insurance, does have an out of pocket cap, right? Once you hit a certain level of spending, you won't spend any more. The insurer will will pay. Traditional Medicare does not have one. So you know you can buy a Medicare Advantage plan or a Medigap plan that does, but not you won't get it through traditional Medicare. And this is one of the things that's a little bit politically difficult because you know for Democrats they, uh, for all politicians they they want to brag about what they have added, what they've given to you. It's something that voters will remember the next time they go to the to the ballot box that hey you know Democrats gave us dental and Democrats gave us vision, but an out of pocket cap, it's kind of a little bit of a wonky thing. And also, um, you know, it has the potential to save someone from really catastrophic costs if they get into, if they become very sick. But most people probably won't experience the benefits of it between now and, you know, November or 2022 or whatever. So, um, so it's, it's one of those things that has, uh, that, that's really a huge hole, but maybe not as felt exactly by everybody the same way. Yeah, this is the thing that like made me want to quit politics. It's like, it's like politics, they're having a hard time in Congress getting this out of pocket thing to have traction the same way that uh, dental vision and hearing does, just because it's not as sexy of a sell. It's not like, oh, we gave this thing to seniors. But it is the thing that stops seniors from going bankrupt. It's actually equally, if, if not more important. The last thing that of the four items we're fighting for here in the Medicare expansion is to let Medicare finally negotiate drug prices. This is something Democrats have been claiming that they were going to fight for for like decades now. During the Affordable Care Act, they famously decided not to. They had this like compromise with pharmaceutical companies, which we won't get into, but it was a total mess. But this would finally do that. And it's actually important because letting Medicare negotiate drug prices would save, you know, up to $450 billion over the next 10 years. That's a lot of cheddar. And you actually use that money to pay for the Medicare expansions that we just talked about. Yeah. So those are basically the four things that um, we could possibly get as soon as August uh, when the bill uh, is actually going through reconciliation. So again, you know, these calls for expansion have been building, not just from the grassroots, but also inside of Congress, right? Since Biden released his Americans family plan, and surprisingly, many House and Senate Democrats said, hey, this actually isn't good enough, and that's centrist included, even going so far as to write a letter from each chamber pressuring Biden to include these reforms that we just discussed, um, including estimates 
uh, actually of how many people would obtain coverage all the way down to 55. So there was some implicit, you know, in these letters that these centrist Democrats wrote to Biden, uh, pressuring him to sort of adapt these uh, these reforms and pass them or sign them was an implicit endorsement of re uh, reducing the Medicare age down to 55. So, Ben, why do we have these strange bedfellows? Yeah, these when these letters came out from the House and the Senate, it was really eye-opening for Medicare for All folks and kind of weird because a lot of Democrats who are staunchly kind of opposed to Medicare for All signed this letter asking to expand Medicare, you know, to cover all these new benefits, to negotiate drug prices, to lower the age of Medicare, which you'd think if you kind of follow the logic of why these are all good reforms, you would end up at a Medicare for All position if you have the same values, right? So that was eye-opening. Uh, the, the House the House letter had four lead signers. Two of them were Medicare for All supporters, two were not. It included Pramila Jayapal, you know, the lead M, who is kind of like, I don't know, the poster child for democratic centrism in the United States, I guess, um, and how we, you know, you can't run on Medicare for All. It's going to derail the Democrats' chances of winning. And then in the House side, the Senate letter had 17 signers. Seven of them are not Medicare for All supporters. So I've been trying to make sense of this. I have a few different theories and which theory you believe in depends on how cynical maybe you are about politics. But I think it's actually kind of important for the chances of Medicare for All and winning over this kind of group of centrists who signed this letter. So tell me what you think about this, Stephanie. <laughs> You're going to have to weigh in at the end here. I it's, also it's a... did find this baffling. So I'm intrigued All right. by your thoughts. All right, I'm going to make it easy for you. Multiple choice, okay? <laughs> choice number one is that a lot of these Democrats, these centrist Democrats who signed on are actually not deeply in the pocket of the healthcare industry. Um, this would be good news for Medicare for All, actually. But they're avoiding Medicare for All because they legitimately see it as like a liability in their district. Maybe they live in a swing district like Connor Lamb does. Maybe it's more suburban, exurban, rural. Maybe it's whiter, it's more conservative or whatever. So maybe they're just making a political you know, calculation. Theory number two is that these Democrats actually are in the pocket of the healthcare industry. You can tell we're getting more cynical as we go, but maybe they're in the pocket of one particular branch of the healthcare industry, but not all of them. You would think that if you're in the pocket of the pharmaceutical industry, for example, you would not support allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. But maybe the health insurance industry doesn't mind this policy as much because age 60 to 65 is actually the most expensive people for them to cover in you know workplace insurance, taking them off their list might actually help. So maybe it would be good for hospitals, increase their revenue. You could kind of see how maybe these are Democrats who are like in the pocket of the healthcare industry, the health insurance industry, but not big pharma. So that's like cynical level number two. Now for the ultimate cynic who really hates politics, my third theory is that um, they're signing the letter, but they don't think it'll pass. And they're happy to throw these provisions under the bus behind closed doors. Um, now, I I would almost, I think I would probably put Biden in this camp, to be perfectly honest. Biden signed on to a lot of these provisions when he was running, only when Bernie Sanders conceded. And you could tell it was an agreement between the two campaigns, right? It's like, well, all right, we'll support these Medicare things. And then Bernie, you'll throw your support behind Biden's campaign for president. So it could be that this is the case for, for these legislators as well. All right, Stephanie, this is the political cynicism test. Which option do you think is actually what's going on here? So of these three, 
Biden falls in the most cynical number of three camp. For and me, <laughs> yeah. It looked better from there, from the president down. <laughs> um, Sad but true. Yeah, and I actually, I... I like to go with D, all of the above. Uh, I think that, um, absolutely Biden falls in the third camp. As far as Democrats that are in the pocket of the healthcare industry, yeah, I can think of a couple right off the top of my head. Richie Neal, for example, um, and well, Kennedy before, but he's not in there anymore. <laughs> um, and then I actually do think that there's quite a number of Dems who are not actually, you know, really relying on healthcare industry money and do avoid Medicare for all because they do see it as a liability, as you were saying, and in their district. I don't know if this is a really a good or a bad. Uh, to me, the reason I think that they're not in the pocket of the industry is because there has not been a reason yet for industry to start buying off those legislators. I think that, you know, in Massachusetts, Richie Neal is, you know, really taking in a lot of money because there's probably a lot of people in his district who strongly support Medicare for all. And so there has to be that counterbalance in order to ensure that he's loyal to them. And so, you know, for you, we talk about this a lot, right? The next Democrats that we have to win over are ones maybe a lot sort of in more conservative Democratic districts, maybe you could say more centrist districts that are um, represented by Democrats, wealthier, wider, you know, maybe the industry doesn't have to buy them off. But we want actually to to get to a place where those are competitive, I think. And so I'm not sure if that's good or bad news. What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're bringing it back to the grassroots, right? Like that. Yeah. The more effective the grassroots movement is in a district, the more the healthcare industry is going to have to spend to try and keep those legislators in their column. I do kind of one thing I like about, you know, reforms like this that are not Medicare for all, but bring us closer to Medicare for all in tangible ways, but also they can be used to divide and conquer the healthcare industry. It's kind of nice to pick out a piece of Medicare for all that we're that we're actually advocating for in the end, and it'll be there when we get there. But it's, you know, maybe it's, uh, we're going up against big pharma in a big way, but not as much going up against the hospital industry. That's kind of a nice divide and conquer tactic. But I don't know if it's working because as weird as our bedfellows are, the legislators we're now working with on this, the opposition seems to be kind of the usual suspects in the way. Stephanie, can you say a little bit more about who's already fighting this and like throwing down money to defeat Medicare expansion from happening? Yeah, absolutely. The usual suspects, the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, that evil transformer of all of the health insurers and pharmaceutical uh, giants and hospitals are pushing back against basically all of those, all four of those um, uh, reform ideas, including, of course, lowering the eligibility age, I think is the one that scares the most. But even up to expanding dental care to seniors, you'd think that that would be sort of a... Uh, uh, something that would be very difficult to argue against. I can't wait to see how you do that. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just their feed on their website. Don't go there. I, I went there for you to show you, to let you know. Um, the, the last, the most recent update is an article building on what works. Medicare Advantage enrollment has more than doubled over the past decade. Hmm. Propos of absolutely nothing, I'm sure. Um, the next one is, in case you missed it, opening up Medicare. This was one that was bumped, right? Opening up Medicare could add nearly $400 billion to the deficit and raise the Medicare tax rate by 285%. Whew. Then the next report, Medicare at 60 could come with a large price tag, higher costs for Americans. And this just kind of goes on and on. But one of the articles that I thought was really the most egregious, right, was Chris Pope 
from the Manhattan Institute, which is heavily funded by health insurance and pharma industry, the pharmaceutical industry. It's probably just, you know, uh, the think tank arm of the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future at this point. Um, and he, you know, gave these really specious arguments on why we should not expand dental coverage to seniors. So the first one, and, you know, y'all can let us know in the comments as well, what do you think of these arguments? The first one is that dental coverage is a really new thing and it actually postdates Medicare. So it was something that came about after 1965. Also something- You may not know this, Stephanie, but I believe people didn't have teeth until after Medicare <laughs> as well. And that explains the odd confluence of events. <laughs> <laughs> or those teeth were- We ate soft food. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Draws were popular. Also since 1965, airbags. So maybe we don't need those either. Um, then, and I, I actually can't even understand what he really meant to say by that dental coverage was new and therefore is it really that important. But then he goes on to contradict that argument by uh, saying that 38% of Medicare beneficiaries already received dental coverage from Medicare Advantage, you know, so do the rest really need it? <laughs> um, so basically he's making this argument that Medicare Advantage is one of the ways that Medicare uh, beneficiaries can actually get dental coverage through Medicare. What do you, a slightly better argument, what do you make of that? <laughs> well, I mean, whenever you, th whenever you hear yourself thinking inside your head, like this argument is just too hard to make. No one is going to be able to effectively argue against it. It's not, it's not true. All you have to do is lie to effectively argue, make it like a nonsensical argument. I don't think this is actually a very good job. If, if the opposition were running TV ads against this Medicare expansion or covering dental, they're not going to use Scott Pope's arguments, I don't think. It'll be uh, the one that really hit me was the cost one. It's like, you know, and this again is lying. It's because they haven't even figured out how it's going to be paid for yet. But it, the ones that's like, it could increase your Medicare premium by X amount, or it's going to cost, increase the deficit by X million dollars. Also not true. All these things are designed to, you use the drug price negotiation to pay for the other things. But I, I think the cost arguments are the most dangerous and the Scott Popes are a little bit ridiculous. I mean, mm. TV ad saying dental coverage is new. I don't know. <laughs> well, I, for me, I think that when I heard this, you know, that Medicare Advantage is providing dental coverage, I thought, how good is that dental coverage, actually? And I looked into it, and it turns out that uh, Medicare Advantage dental coverage is not actually that good, right? So the New York Times reported, and this is from Kaiser, that among and plans... Medicare Advantage plans that offer both preventive and more extensive dental benefits, 43% of them face annual dollar caps, which are typically around $1,000, and that commercial dental plans offer about the same kind of coverage. So if you need an example of how it is, in another New York Times article, um, story of 75-year-old Ellen Phillips, who had lost all of her upper teeth. They were really badly infected, and they had to be extracted a couple of years ago, and now her tongue is constantly eats to get the extraction of the rest, which will cost at least thirty thousand dollars. So, you know, the idea that well, people can get a Medicare Advantage plan that is on average getting going to pay them about a thousand dollars for what they need—that's a huge 
there's a huge gap there, I think, in what's actually required for people who have really intense dental needs and what these plans are going to actually cover. Yeah. And I, I appreciate in the comments section from Facebook, Miranda pointing out that almost all dental coverage is bad. Uh, maybe not quite that bad, like a $1,000 maximum coverage for the whole year, but almost the best dental coverage you can buy is still not very good. It has, they have huge gaps in it. And I mean, the private market will never solve this for us. We were never going to get good dental coverage through private insurance. This is only something that a public plan can make right. And it is just insane that we have been for so long treating the mouth as like not part of the body. It's like, it's just, it's just another part of the body. It's the same thing. It's, you know, it can lead to really dangerous uh, life ending illnesses. It can lead to really challenging functionality in your day-to-day life. It's just a part of the body that has to be treated like everything else. It's medical care. So that to me is like one of the more important things that Medicare for All does is it just it just treats dental care like health care, like all other health care. So I hope we can get there. I mean, this is just insane. And it's infuriating when you see someone with the balls to like attack dental coverage. Making dental coverage universal is just shocking for seniors, you know. Right. And even in a place like Denmark, so one of the examples when Denmark was in the news a lot and Hillary Clinton was saying, we're not Denmark, was that, well, Denmark doesn't actually cover, you know, there's actually dental insurance in Denmark, you know, because the single payer uh, insurance plan here does not actually cover all of dental. What they fail to tell you about that, and here's a personal anecdote from my own life, is uh, my husband who needed, um, Mikhail, what was it that you needed? A crown or something? Uh, yeah, but I didn't get that. They, uh, they, they did the... Right. So he needed, he needed to get a crown. This was diagnosed in the U.S. The audience is now shocked. <laughs> <laughs> Stephanie's husband is basically on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> He's listening in, uh, giving me the eye when I say something off. Yeah. So he had to get, uh, they told him that he needed to get a crown for like five, it was like $5,000 or something, right? I think three and a half. Okay. Three and a half thousand dollars. And then, then you went to you were like, I want a second opinion. So he went to his dentist in Denmark, which he doesn't even, can't even access anymore because he's like living outside of the country. So he doesn't get to participate in the single payer now because he lives in the US. But how much did you end up actually paying out of pocket, like totally without any insurance at all? $120, but it wasn't for a crown. Right. So they told him basically that they sort of overdiagnosed it and he just needed to get, what was it, a cap or something like that? Okay, I'm sorry, this is going on too long. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in the end, they told him that when he did eventually need to get a crown years down the road, it was going to be like a fraction of that cost, even out of pocket, not getting any subsidy from the Danish system, which does provide subsidies for you, like fairly mm-hmm. significant subsidies. And you can get like a d- d- dental on top of that, but it's nothing like how much it would cost in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I do also I have no evidence to back this up, but anecdotally, I feel like overtreatment is running rampant in the U.S. dental care, just as because it's a, such a money-making system, a profit-driven system. So we're going to close up with action, calls to action soon. I do want to just sort of highlight for folks that most of the fight for all these four Medicare expansion proposals is going to be in the Senate. Um, and that is because, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of these things have actually already passed the House. I think it was HR three, or, or the third bill that they passed is doesn't have all four of these, but it, I think it at least has the prescription drug negotiation, and then it has the expansion to dental hearing and um, vision, and 
So lowering the age of Medicare, like Stephanie says, is going to be the hardest fight so that we feel like we should be putting the most effort into that, especially in the Medicare for All movement. That's the most important contribution I think we can get towards Medicare for All. But the reason the Senate is the real hard thing is just because there's only 50 Democratic senators. So all the opposition we just went over, Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, these right wing right wingers, all they have to do is peel off one Democrat in the Senate. And they can tank, you know, obviously Medicare expansion, but also anything else in the American Families Plan that you might like. And we know that there are, everyone's been talking about Joe Manchin, but um, as far as I know, he's actually not the closest to uh, Big Pharma. There are other senators who I won't name publicly who are closer to, to Big Pharma. And the leaders in the Senate who are trying to win this are worried more about those senators. So we're, our, our call to action is really going to be very Senate focused. And we're going to ask you to really urge your senators to fight for all four of these provisions in the budget reconciliation package that's they're deciding on it right now in the coming weeks. So yeah, they have to know that we are aware that this vote is happening, that they have a chance to vote on it, and we're going to be watching the way that they vote on it. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're going to have two asks here to start. We're, we're doing a week of action around this at, at Healthcare Now. We're going to ask all our members by email, by text, by everything to sort of start taking action and pressuring their senators on this. But the first ask is that just you call your senator. This is kind of the most simple thing you can do. The capital switchboard where you can reach your senator is 202 224-3121. I'll say it one more time. 202-224-3121. That's the capital switchboard. Just call your senator. Make sure that if they're a Democrat that they're supporting this. Call them if they're a Republican too and ask and see what they say. Stephanie, you want to talk about the other um, sort of thing we're focused on here? Sure. Yeah. And I also just threw the number in the chat okay, um, so that people could could just have it on their phone or however they're watching. So the next one is more more of a targeted action. If you're between 50 and 65 years of age, then you are the most likely to be affected by you know, these reforms that we're talking about and therefore are the most powerful advocates for them. So what we'd love for you to do is to write a letter to the editor or an op-ed to your local paper. Uh, you want it to be your local paper so that your, uh, your rep and your senators can see and tell your personal story about what it would mean to you to have the Medicare eligibility age lowered or to have an expansion of dental benefits or whatever, and uh, asking specifically your senator to please vote uh, or your senators to please vote uh, yes on those reforms. Um, and if you're not in that age range, you're under 50, but you know somebody who is, uh, then you can you know help them write a letter to the editor or an op-ed to the local papers, again, asking their senators to sign on. Yeah. And you can also just reach out to us. We will be happy to help you write uh, an op-ed letter or if you want to record your story. If you're not in this age range, as you get close to the Medicare age is when you're really most screwed by private health insurance. Uh, Once you hit, you know, 50, 55, early 60s, insurance companies are allowed to discriminate against you and charge much higher premiums. So you can face premiums that are, you know, three times higher than a young person's premiums for the same exact care. So it's just awful that as you're starting to get more and more health needs, probably on average, you are just getting screwed over harder and harder by private insurance company. So your voice, I think, is particularly powerful for Medicare for All and also for Medicare expansion. So we would love to work with you. Just email us or reach out to us on any of the platforms that this is broadcast on. Yeah. Facebook, YouTube. 
whatever. And I'll know. just end with a personal story about why this is super important to me. So my my parents, my dad is of Medicare age and he has Medicare. My mom is not, she's 60. And she, you know, my dad actually is suffering from dementia. And so she has to leave him for 20 hours a week to work at a job that pays her $15 an hour just for health benefits. And, you know, he's getting to a point now where he'll like leave the house and then he'll be gone for three hours. We don't know where he went and everything. And so it's very nerve wracking for my mom who is working this job really just to pay for the health insurance benefits for her and, you know, extra benefits for my dad. And so I think that, you know, if, if Medicare eligibility is reduced to 60, then my mom can quit that job and start like being more aware of what's going on with my dad on a day-to-day basis, which would be hugely taking a burden off of us. And so there's just even like a caretaker element there for people who have spouses who are older and um, have medical issues as well. Can we add an action for better home care support? (laughs) Um, That's a huge one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for that story. And I, unfortunately, far too many people have stories like this. So we're going to fight for this uh, during this budget reconciliation. And as soon as that's over, we're going to start fighting for the, the Senate bill uh, that Bernie Sanders is going to introduce for Medicare for All right after this. So that's kind of our progression for the year. I want to end by thanking our podcast team. Um, our podcast manager is Sarah Sang. Our writer for this episode was Lindsay Beige, and Jerry Katz wrote the show notes, and our audio editor was Sandra Felicia. So thank you so much to our podcast team. We'll talk to you all in a couple of weeks.